0: The book of Daniel. When you hear Daniel, you think two things. I think I might have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. You think, like, Sunday school stories and end-time prophecy, you know? Uh, And uh, oftentimes, sadly, uh, the first six chapters of the book are are relegated to almost like storybook fashion kind of thing, you know? Uh, uh, Children's stories. And uh, uh, now... Having said that, uh, it is great to be able to communicate uh, these uh, this narrative to children, <laughs> no doubt, right? But it's not the place to leave it. Is the point that they, on many levels, uh, Daniel and the lions, den and and uh, the issue in the first chapter of eating the you know not eating the food on the king's table and all that. On many levels, these speak to us in the world in which we live. As we'll be saying, all this is by way of introduction. That uh, Daniel certainly speaks into uh, the culture in which we live, because, as you know, the children of Israel were in exile, right? And so here we see how do you live in exile? We live in exile. We live in exile on many levels. Again, it's never just so reduced to. Just black and white. <laughs> that would be nice, I suppose. But we're, we live in exile just as uh, Daniel did. We live in exile because, first of all, Yeshua is not ruling on his throne from Jerusalem, right? Uh, the Bible says we have been delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, right? And, and so uh, that we live uh, in the invisible kingdom of God. Yeshua is our Lord, but we live in the midst of the kings of this world, Yeshua's uh, um, parables uh, about the mystery of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13 and elsewhere describe this, you know, this, this state of exile. You know, the seeds that fall on different kinds of ground, it tells us that this kingdom can be rejected, that it's not one of these objective truths that, well, the Messiah has come, now here is this kingdom. The Messiah has come and some people enter and some people don't, right? Uh, there's other parables about dwelling in the kingdom of God at the very same time as living on your street with neighbors, uh, and that, uh, uh you have the wheat and the tares, you know, living side by side. And so we're not separated as w- with a, uh, like a stonewall barrier, right? We live in this world. Uh, we also read how, uh, the kingdom of God looks small and insignificant, Yet it is the most precious of all, the pearl of uh, of great price, uh, and that little that little mustard seed, you know, that seems so small, but in the eyes of God is very big and and uh, significant. So we live in exile because we're still in the midst of this world. In another sense, we live in exile. Certainly, as a messianic Jewish community, we live in exile because we don't live in Israel. We live in the diaspora. And so living in this diaspora, it's like a double whammy for us. Yes, culturally, uh, uh, there is the worldly culture, and then there is just the culture of the nations. And so uh, certainly it is not easy to live as a believer in this world today, is it? It's not easy. Just drive down the road, everything you see, everything, you know, everything that we're bombarded with, right? But on another level, trying to uh be uh, a messianic jew living in this environment is also quite difficult first of all we live in a in, in the christian world it's a it's a gentile christian world and so to maintain a jewish identity in a gentile christian world and on top of it in the culture the general culture in which we live you could say in a human fleshly way is next to impossible That's why it's always a struggle. That's why everything's always, it's a struggle, right? And we're always in the process of becoming, but we're not there yet. Because we live in the diaspora. Uh, We live in a spiritual, one could say an invisible spiritual exile, and in a cultural, um, ethnic exile uh, as as well. And not just Messianic Jews, but everyone who would identify, you know, with Beth Messiah and so on, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, and, uh, and, and so we can certainly identify in this way uh, with, uh, with Daniel and his friends and the challenges uh, that they have. Then you have the other, uh, the last part of the book of Daniel, right? Uh, and you know, it's kind of sad that many people who love the book of Daniel, like when I say we're going to teach on the book of Daniel, ooh, the book of Daniel, I'm coming. We're thinking Horns. We're thinking, is it 1,335? What does it mean? Right? Uh, we're, we're, we're thinking, is it Greece or is it Rome? What is that kingdom there? Right? We're trying to figure it all out. And uh, sadly, we, we oftentimes miss the point of the, of the big scheme of things. And that is, is that in this world that we live in, we live in the midst of empires, We live in the midst of ungodly empires to this very day. But the day is indeed coming when the kingdom of God will reign. Right? Uh, And this speaks a lot about Yeshua, the Son of Man coming in the clouds, and things we read in Matthew chapter 24. In fact, Matthew actually references the prophet Daniel. You know? Uh, And so uh, the book of Daniel is very important. In fact, two issues of the coming of, uh, of the Messiah. Now, <clears throat> I don't mean to demean those passages about the little horn and the two horns and the shaggy goat and all that. I don't mean to demean that at all because we're going to be talking about it. We're, we are going to unpack. We're not just going to say it's symbolic. Nobody knows what they mean. No, because the text itself actually informs us uh, on a lot of these issues. And they are important for us uh, uh, to understand. But we don't want to lose the overall sense of uh, of the book, and that is that the day is going to come when, when the kingdom of God will reign, but we are living in a day uh, where there is no theocracy, uh, where empires rule. Uh, and so when it comes to whether we're talking about cosmic empires, worldly empires, uh, whether we're talking about what happens in our culture, and, uh, and for us individually, uh, the book of Daniel is about life in, uh, in the exile. And so it answers, I think, a lot of questions for us about how we negotiate life, how we deal with issues at work and in our neighborhood, uh, how we make decisions uh, about uh, the culture, you know? Uh, uh, believers often uh, uh, are faced with social uh, issues that need, uh, that need to be discussed. And, and uh, uh, what kind of testimony uh, do, I have, uh, do I have in them? And, uh, and so it's very important. The book of Daniel certainly is uh, very important. Now, in a Jewish world, uh, the book of Daniel uh, has a lot of messianic overtones. A lot of messianic overtones. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to read a little quote. Uh, from, um, this is the art scroll uh, commentary on Daniel, okay? Uh, and unlike uh, Christian commentaries, Jewish commentaries do not like, go verse by verse and say, this is what this verse means. Next, this is what this verse means. Next, this it's not, you'll be very disappointed, okay? Basically, uh, the way a, a Jewish commentary works is kind of like the way Rashi, the... Uh, 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 a uh, comment, Jewish commentator of a thousand years ago, uh, handled the text of the scripture. In fact, I have a, uh, a book. It's called What's Bothering Rashi? That's the name of the book. And the reason it's called that is, is because he, like others of uh, the, the great sages of Israel, they only commented on things that they found interesting. You know, uh, they did not speak to what was, uh, well, that's obvious, you know, or I have no question about this but they commented on, it kind of makes sense when you think about it, right? They commented on difficult passages and and things of that nature. And so in a a modern Jewish commentary, what you have is the commentaries of commentary, (laughs) of uh, not so much just what does the verse say, but what did Rashi say? What did Maimonides say? What did this one say? That one said? So in terms of getting a, a, a Jewish understanding of the text, it's, uh, it's, you know, very interesting and helpful. So here, uh, in the introduction, uh, it's talking about uh, some things related to Daniel and the end of days. So just, just this one little uh, bit. You know, me, I'm tempted to read like half the book, but... Okay. Uh, Much has been written by the sages concerning the conditions and timing of the Messiah's coming. The closing chapters of Daniel, meaning 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, <laughs> okay... The closing chapters of Daniel as well, with their visions of the various exiles, the four kingdoms, and the end of days, are clearly the vessels within which are contained revelations that plot the course of history from Daniel's day onward until the final promised redemption. The Messiah will arrive when all are righteous. He will arrive when all are sinful. He will come amid pomp and magnificence. He will come humbly and in poverty. He will come at an appointed time. He can come at any moment. The tribulations preceding his coming will be so frightening that one should hope not to witness them. There's a famous rabbinic quote about that. Uh, one should long, On the other hand, one should long to greet him. Indeed, uh, many great tzaddikim, many great righteous people or sages, had special suits of clothes or composed joyous tunes with which to greet the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? And this comes uh, in the book of Daniel. Now, let me just, uh, let me unpack this little paragraph. And this is important, okay? When it says the Messiah will arrive when all are righteous, he will arrive when all are sinful. He will come amid pomp and circumstance. He will come humbly and in poverty. Obviously, those are opposites, right? Uh, And so isn't it interesting, there's written into the text, and in the book of Daniel, you have this mystery Uh, And, uh, well, I'll leave it at that. This mystery of the coming of the Messiah, you know, pomp and circumstance, uh, humbly, uh, when people are righteous, when people are sinful, how could this be? And God has uh, given us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand in the coming of Yeshua. He has not given us complete clarity in the whole thing, even though there are some who think he has. Okay, he has not given us complete clarity, but we have a lot more clarity than we had before Yeshua came. We do not understand every single bit of what's going to happen, uh, you know, just before Yeshua returns. Okay, he has given us certainly uh, enlightenment to large portions of it and big schemes of it and so on, and we certainly understand. How it could be that the Messiah would come in poverty and the Messiah comes in magnificence and the Messiah comes when all are sinful and Messiah comes when all are righteous, that we have much more clarity on, on the person of Yeshua. See, and when the Messiah came, it's important for us to recognize, although we use, we like to use the terminology first coming and second coming, I would suggest that there's two appearances, that the Messiah has indeed come, but there are two major appearances of the Messiah. In other words, uh, when uh, the Messiah came, he did not disappear. We are not Messiah-less in our world. In fact, every time you could say someone comes and embraces the Messiah, we see, we see the presence of the Messiah in our world. When there are healings or great miracles or uh uh even the uh you know in our world the uh the establishment of the modern state of Israel and and uh the miraculous uh, way in which Israel has been sustained sometimes what we like to do is say well that's that's not yeshua that that's god that doesn't have so much to do with yeshua but may i suggest it has everything to do uh with the messiah these are messianic activities taking place in this world you see so the messiah has come and he is here but he will appear again in a uh, miraculous fantastic way the the parousia as as it's called Uh, and so when people make fun of us sometimes it's because sometimes it's our own terminology a little bit but when we say oh you we believe in one coming you believe in two right You've heard that. You know, you hear the, all these kinds of things. No, 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 no. I believe that the Messiah came and he's here. He's invisible, right? He's invisible. That's true. But we see his, we see the manifestation of the Messiah in our world, in the community of Messiah followers. See? But in this community of Messiah followers, in this invisible presence of the Messiah, we live in the midst of a darkened culture. We live in the midst of a world where we are not immune to its persecutions, just as Yeshua himself was not immune to it. In fact, when you read the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, that is a vision statement of, of looking at, and this is when you embrace Yeshua, this is your future. And so if you are mourning today, if, you know, if you are persecuted today, I, this is not all there is. There is a future. And it's important for us to understand from indeed the book of Daniel that the big message of Daniel is not about Daniel. It's not about Daniel and the lion's den. It's not about uh, those uh stories uh of uh of uh Daniel's deliverance. They illustrate the fact that God is faithful in a in a horrible culture and that God is present. But what the book of Daniel is about is about the sovereignty of God. It is about uh, the overall uh, hand of God in this world, even in Babylon. But there's something else about this book, and that is, when I say it's not about Daniel, and this is very important, and that is, That Daniel lived and died, you know? Daniel lived and died. The world was not changed after the days of Daniel, okay? Uh, But when Daniel had these visions, he was encouraged, and so are we to realize, that even though in our own lifetimes, there may not be the great uh, consummation, it's coming. How do we know that? And how do we know Daniel understood that? Because I would say one of the key verses of this whole book is in the third chapter, okay? Now, we're going to get to it in its context and everything else, okay? Uh, uh, and it has to do with the, you know, the uh, the fiery furnace episode. Because they make a great statement. It's not, Lord, deliver us. We're Hebrews, let's watch you deliver us. No. They did not have actually... The assurance that they themselves would be delivered. That came at the grace of God, yes. But they did not have that assurance. Look what you read in Daniel chapter 3, uh, in verse um, 17 and following. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, but even if he does not, even if he does not. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up, even if not, even if he does not. If you just quoted this verse without giving its context, there are some who would say, whoever's saying that doesn't have enough faith. Whoever's, what do you mean, even if, if he does not? Don't you believe in God? Don't you believe in the power of God? Absolutely, the, these were faithful people. But they realized that, you know, that the God of the universe is concerned about not only my happiness and my well-being. It's not about me. It's about his kingdom. It's about what he's doing in this world. And we have the privilege of serving him. It's not him who has the privilege of serving us. We have the privilege of serving him. These young men recognize. That they're serving God, regardless of where they are, and regardless of what happens to them, what happens to them is not a barometer of faith of faithfulness. But they understood that, in some way, shape, or form, whatever happens to them is part of the grand scheme of what God is doing. Very important, and that plays out uh, in uh, indeed in this book. We'll see it at the very beginning in the first couple of chapters. We'll see it all. Uh, all the way through. Now, the book of Daniel itself is an interesting book besides uh, the difference between the first six chapters and the last uh, 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 six chapters. Um, There is, uh, for example, uh, the fact that um, uh, part of it is written in Aramaic and part of it is written in Hebrew. Now, you're going to say, Wow, let me see what that Aramaic looks like. And you're going to look at it and say, hey, it looks like Hebrew to me, right? Uh, And the reason for that is because Hebrew, the Hebrew that you read, the Hebrew you read in your Bible, the Hebrew you read in the scroll, are actually Aramaic letters. How do you like that? Whoa, what does that mean? Oh, come to MSI, take varieties of classes, you'll learn all about it. Take Hebrew, take classes on the prophets, take certainly the classes on the writings. We talk all about that. Okay, Uh, so, you know, it it looks the same, but it is uh, indeed uh, Aramaic. Now, you know what's interesting? You see Aramaic in other places in the Bible. You see Aramaic, frankly, sprinkled all over the place. You actually have some Aramaic in Isaiah. Isn't that interesting? Uh, You, of course, have it in Ezra, uh, and, uh, and some in Zechariah, uh, you know, and, uh, and elsewhere. So a portion of it is written in Aramaic. That has led some to the conclusion that it must have been written in the second century. But, uh, you know, I would say not necessarily because you do see it in much earlier texts, biblical and extra-biblical texts. In fact, uh, there is a, a dead language, You know, when you study Hebrew and the Northwest Semitic languages, you love languages that nobody ever speaks or heard about, right? So there's a language called Akkadian, Akkadian. And there are some Akkadian texts that are very similar in in their kind of writing to texts in Daniel. Now that's interesting because those texts were written about 500 years before anybody thinks Daniel might be written. So the fact that it's written in Aramaic, uh, uh and also the fact that a portion of it is apocalyptic what do what do we mean by uh apocalyptic uh, you know things uh, uh, that uh had not been revealed before using uh highly symbolic uh language uh, uh with the purpose of uh not just uh, giving us uh, information uh but also of uh of uh, uh Desiring uh, to convince us to walk godly now in light of future events, the kind of language you often see in the Book of Revelation, uh, you see uh, a lot of that type of language here in Daniel. In fact, in many Bible schools, Daniel and Revelation are taught as one course. Uh, and if you've been to a Bible school, you you might even remember uh, might remember that. Uh, and um, uh, and so there are a lot of interesting. Uh, things about uh, uh, the book of Daniel. Now, in terms of uh, this issue of, of when it was written, uh, that, uh, you know, uh, perhaps I'll teach an MSI course on Daniel. That might not be a bad idea. But uh, I would say that while I, uh, there are things in the text that could lead a person to see it as a second-century text, there's plenty of... Uh, in the text of Daniel for one to come to the conclusion that, the, that, that, the way, that what it says about itself is uh, indeed uh, accurate. One of the reasons that people come to a 2nd century conclusion is because it seems to speak so clearly of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, from the Hanukkah story, right, in the 2nd century. But, but what's interesting about that is you have Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if Dan, the, the dating of Daniel in the Dead Sea Scrolls is uh, uh, right around the time, or maybe a little a little before uh, the events of the Maccabees, so certainly even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's not so late that it's after the fact. In other words, it's still uh, prophetic. Uh, and as uh, you know, Dr. Meyer, you all know Sam Meyer, uh, in a class at Ohio State University. On Jewish history, It wasn't an you know a uh, Old Testament as literature class or something like that, just in a history class. Uh, the book that uh, we were assigned uh, had the presupposition that there that none of it is true, that that the Bible is completely, almost completely, a work of fiction. Okay, that was the text. Okay, so <clears throat> he was explaining you know why he was using this text because you know certain things in it and so on and so forth. So he said in the class, he said, but when it comes to understanding, uh, you know, the Bible is, you know, what what it purports to say, uh, whether it's, you know, we understand that as accurate or not, he says, when he said this, whenever possible, I give the Bible the benefit of the doubt. I thought that was a great statement. I love that statement. Uh, and I would say, absolutely. Uh, and so... Uh, there is no uh, a reason why we must come to the conclusion that Daniel was written in the 2nd century. So that means that when Yeshua says, according to Daniel the prophet, it's according to Daniel the prophet, and that uh, Daniel uh, was a, a person who lived in the 6th century, who uh, was taken into captivity, and had these experiences and had real visions. Uh, the text purports to tell us, um, tell us that, uh, uses historical figures in times like Nebuchadnezzar and Jehoiakim and, and, and so on. And so uh, uh, Daniel is about this time period when the Jewish people were in uh, captivity uh, in the 6th century, right? So that's the 500s BCE, right? Now that can be confusing when it's before uh, the time of Yeshua, right? So the 6th century is the 500s. Now, so um, let's take a look very briefly at the first verse. So it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Okay? Uh, I guess the first two verses. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, uh, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So first, we have at the beginning the time when this takes place. Okay? The third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. In that third year, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, uh, came to Jerusalem uh, and besieged it. Okay. Now... You read in, we can turn to Second um, Chronicles chapter 36. Let's turn there. There's a number of passages, but think we can turn there. Second Chronicles 36. Then the people of the land took Joaz, the son of Josiah, and made him king in place of his father in Jerusalem. Joaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months uh, in Jerusalem. Then the, king, then the king deposed him at Jerusalem and imposed on the land uh, a fine of 100 talents of silver and one talent of gold. And the king of Egypt made Eliakim his brother king over Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to jo- Joiakim. But Necho took Joahaz his brother and brought him to Egypt. Okay, let's stop there. Uh, if you go up to the end of chapter 35, okay? Uh, you know, perhaps you know, uh, that, um, let's see, I think I'll just tell you what happens here to save some time. God told uh, Josiah that, uh, that he was a good king and that he would live to be a ripe old age, okay? But you need to, but basically in our terminology, he said you need to retire and you live to a ripe old age. So, you know, Israel is located, Judah, Israel, Located in between, two, in the Bible, two great world empires, always. Two, in between two great world empires. Egypt and Assyria, right? Egypt and Assyria. That's why Israel is sometimes called the land between. Between two great uh, empires, okay? All right. So Egypt was very powerful uh, at this particular time, all right? Josiah makes a big mistake and goes up to Megiddo and fights Necho, Pharaoh Necho. And Pharaoh Necho kills Josiah. Josiah was a reformer. Josiah was a good king. Now, what takes place, this is the beginning of the end. Because now, Egypt uh, is uh, basically the ruler of Judea. And has puppet kings, appoints puppet kings. All right? And so we see, first, one king is appointed, rules for three months. But then, Joiakim becomes uh, becomes the king. All right? All right. Now, in verse 6 of chapter 36, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to take him to Babylon. Why, uh, why does he do this? He does this because uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, comes and fights Pharaoh Necho and defeats him. And the Egyptians no longer are in power and now It's actually technically called the Neo-Babylonian Empire comes to be with the famous Nebuchadnezzar. So now Nebuchadnezzar uh, is overseeing Judea, okay, and raises up puppet kings and, and takes them into captivity. All right? All right. So Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him with bronze chains to take him to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon, to put them in uh, his temple at, uh, at Babylon. Okay, so there you see uh, uh, a bit of this history. Now we're going to turn to another place. Turn to um, 2 Kings 23. Okay, here, here we have this, this history. In, the, in his days, Pharaoh Necho, king, king of Egypt, this is in verse 29 of 2 Kings 23. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates. And and King Josiah went to meet him. And when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. Okay? All right. Now, now if we move uh, move down to chapter 24, quickly. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, Bands of Moabites, bands of Ammonites. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servant the prophets. Okay? Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight, because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done. And also for all the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. Now, if you go to the last verse of chapter 24, Verse 20, it says, For through the anger of the Lord this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out of his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And Zedekiah is the last. You always know he's the very last king because he starts with a Z. Okay? Okay. Now, we won't take the time now, but if you, learn, if you turn to Jeremiah chapter 25 and you read the first 14 verses, you'll see that Jeremiah refers to Nebuchadnezzar as Uh, the servant of God, okay? So when you come back now to Daniel, and he says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem to besiege it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Right from the get-go, we see all of this is within the providence of God. Every bit of the... This is like, you know, the beginning of the book is screaming at us, God gave uh, a, a Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. This is all by the work of God. In fact, in the, in the Haftorah portion from Ezekiel today, the famous passage, God will put hooks in their jaws and bring them down, what, what that passage is saying is that when the nations come from the north and invade Eretz Yisrael, God is the one bringing it to pass. Even though nations and empires think they're in control, God is indeed bringing it to pass. God is bringing this all to pass. The reason that Daniel and his friends are in captivity is because of the sins of the people. Is because this is a judgment on, uh, on Israel, on the Jewish people, and that's why uh, they are indeed in Babylon. So even in exile... Even in his judgment, God does not forsake his people. And that is true indeed uh, uh, to this day uh, in in regard to Israel and the Jewish people. Yes, en masse, the Jewish people do not uh, embrace Yeshua. But contrary to what many people teach, God has not forsaken his covenant uh, with with Israel. Uh, He indeed still is faithful. And we ourselves... I in this world live in exile. I uh, amidst this culture, the culture of this world, and God has not left us forsaken, uh, forsaken either. Right? Uh, it's hard for us to get our arms around the fact that that God is the one who brings this uh, upon the people. Because this particular situation happened so many thousands of years ago, it's just conventional wisdom now. But when you read, for example, the prophet Habakkuk, I won't take the time to turn there, but you can read the beginning of it. Habakkuk says, how long, O Lord? What are you going to do? And God says, I'm going to do something you can't believe, right? He says, I'm going to take the Chaldeans, these people. I'm going to take the Chaldeans and bring them uh, upon you to judge the people. And and what does Habakkuk say? No, Lord, you can't do that. You can't do that. No, these are evil people. How can you do that? Well, that's what we see uh, uh, taking place place here. In fact, when it says that they would take some of the vessels and bring them to uh, Babylon, Isaiah says that the vessels would be brought to Babylon, that this was all uh, in the hand of God. But there's something else here that we just want to get at the beginning. On the surface, and this will be the end, At the, on the surface, it looks like all is lost. It looks like all is lost. Israel loses, right? At the end of 2 Kings, it's, I mean, it's a horrible story. It's a horrible ending, right? There's They go into captivity. There is no more Israel. There's no more Judea. Uh, and it looks like all is lost on the ground. It looks like is lost not only that but it looks like the God of Israel is not powerful that's what it looks like because not only are his people defeated and taken into captivity but also the vessels from his house have been taken his house has been ransacked how weak is this God of Israel but notice here in the text in Hebrew, uh, it says, actually, literally, okay, uh, in the, it says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Well, actually, in Hebrew, it says the house of the God, ha-Elohim. So that, that's rather interesting, okay? Meaning it's, uh, you know, uh, it's speaking of a, uh, of a person, of, of, a, of an individual, Right? The house of God. But then notice, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, the God of Nebuchadnezzar. Not the God of Israel, the one and only God, but into the house of his God, Nebuchadnezzar. One of many gods, see? And so we see here uh, that uh, the writer is telling us that there's a difference between the house of God and his God. And then finally, the word Shinar, it's also kind of interesting. The word Shinar, why doesn't it say Babylon? It says Shinar. It says Shinar to remind us uh, that this is an ungodly place. Because you look in your Bible, and we'll come back to it next week, as to where is the first place that we read about Shinar uh, in the Bible. It's, uh, it's a place of ungodliness, Uh, And it goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And we'll take a look at that next time. But right now, let's pray. Lord uh, God, may we uh, realize, God, in our own lives and places, that even though sometimes uh, it seems like all may be lost on the ground, that it is not, and and that somehow and in some way you are indeed at work. Lord, we thank you that we see that right here in the beginning of the book of Daniel, that you gave the king into the hand of the evil king. You gave the hand uh, of the descendant of David into the king of Babylon. How could this be, Lord? Well, God, we know that many things take place in our own world and in our own lives that we say, how could this be? And Lord, may the day come when we can look in retrospect and understand a little bit more about it. But like Daniel and like his friends, in the middle of it, may we be able to be faithful no matter what it may look like around us. And Lord, may we remember that your kingdom wins in the end. And Lord, we thank you for that great assurance. We pray in Messiah's name, amen.